Uh, that being said, we're going to go into 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 15, where we get some of these New Testament ecclesiological principles, or ecclesiology just means the study of the church, uh, the ch- study of the household of God. And so uh, we get into one of the distinctives here uh, in how Calvary Chapel uh, teaches a certain position on uh, women in ministry. Uh, So this will probably be for the next two weeks that we're in this passage, and we're going to stand together as I read 1 Timothy 2, 8 through 15, and we would begin to bow our hearts before the word of God as our governing authority uh, in all things concerning church life, church practice, church godliness. Let me read it today. You can follow along. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. And like manner also that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing, but which is proper for women professing godliness with good works. Let a woman know in silence with all submission. And I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man, But to be in silence. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with self control. And Lord, as we've read this, we believe that this is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative word of God. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. If this is your first time to Calvary Chapel, I'm sorry. Okay? Just walking through the Word. And one beautiful thing about walking through the Scriptures is we tackle the hard topics as they come to us. It's not always easy. Please pray for me. Pray for me right now as I'm teaching this. Pray for me this next week as we get into probably part two next Sunday. Uh, We have kind of a joke among the elders that uh, it's probably been six or seven years that whenever we come to a really hard, tough elders meeting, we always end the meeting with a good, (laughs) it just loosens you up really good, you know, it just lets the stress out. So you guys will probably be doing that at the end of the day or maybe in the car ride home, but as we come to this passage, you guys didn't get the thing. I don't, I don't blame you. You're still worried about like, what, what are we getting into here in this Bible passage today? As we get into this section that is very controversial, has caused division in the last uh, 50 years especially, um, we are going to be learning some principles of Bible interpretation. These come from the knowing and the understanding that the Bible is the God-breathed Word of God, as 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 tells us. This comes from the understanding that there's no private interpretation, that you can just go ahead and believe what you want to believe about the Bible, and I'll go ahead and just believe what I want to believe about the Bible, and we're all kind of right in our own way. Peter tells us in 1 Peter that that is not the case, but rather 
holy men of God were moved as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write what we have today. As you study Bible interpretation and Bible translation, you'll find from some incredibly genius men who've done their hard research that there's nothing we need to worry about concerning the original written manuscripts and how they've been translated today. I would say we use wisdom in the translations that we teach out of versus maybe what we learn and grow out of just in private devotional life. That's a whole nother study for another time. But the wonderful thing is, is the translations that we use to teach you ESV, New King James Version, King James Version, New American Standard Version. These are all very accurate copies of the original manuscripts. And that's an exciting thing that we have as Christians. We're not just following cunningly devised fables. We're following the the word of God. And when we read the Bible, we believe that God speaks. And so when we understand that, we come to this passage concerning uh, women and their dress, women and their conduct, uh, women and their role within the church and within leadership. This even blends into women and their role within the home and even women and their role within the community. And so we have to ask a few questions as we get into this. Uh, I'm going to give some principles, especially to one question here today. As we read this passage, to what extent is it limited by culture? To what extent is it limited by the culture of Paul's day, by the culture of our days? This is an important question because of the task of the Bible interpreter, the Bible preacher. Um, eternal souls hang in the balance in how we, how we answer these questions and how we teach uh, these scriptures. So uh, we've got to determine what the text meant to its immediate readers in that cultural setting. So, you know, the mailman comes and they drop off a letter and it says, you know, to the church in Ephesus. And then up in the top left of the envelope, it says from Paul the Apostle. Okay, so that's the original. Oh, sweet. We got something in the mail, you know, and you rip open the envelope and you crack it open. What did this mean to those Ephesians that were reading it in their day? Then we've got to ask the question to determine what the text means to us and our culture a couple of thousands of years later across the world in a totally different demographic and environment. How do we determine as Bible interpreters which practices, situations, commands, and precepts should be considered permanent and thus relevant for us today? And which ones should be considered temporary and just cultural? How do we know what is transferable to our culture And what's not transferable? Well, the first principle, and I have it on the screen because you're not going to be able to write it down fast enough. Some situations, commands, or principles 
are repeatable. They are continuous. As you read the scriptures, it's constantly repeated. It's something you see in the whole of a book, in the whole of a a genre, in the whole of uh, a testament, uh, something like that. They are repeatable. They're continuous. They're not revoked. So at no time as we read the Bible is it taken away. And or they pertain to moral and theological subjects. That's very important. Moral things don't change. Theological things don't change. And or are repeated elsewhere in the scripture and therefore are permanent and transferable to us today in 2018, Prineville, Oregon. Okay? Um, You see things like capital punishment in Genesis chapter 9, never revoked. You see things like trust the Lord, repeated over and over again. Putting on the armor, as Blaine said, it's not revoked, nor is a commandment towards humility. As McQuilkin says, all scripture should be received as normative for every person in all societies of all times, unless the Bible itself limits the audience, okay? In other words, the Bible is its own authority, even when it sets limits on what things are culture-bound and what things are not. Is this command paralleled elsewhere in Scripture? You're going to want to ask that about today's text. This will help determine what commands can be repeated. So that's the first principle. The second principle, when dealing with these cultural questions, some situations, commands, or principles pertain to an individual's specific, non-repeatable circumstances and or non-moral, non-theological subjects and or they have been revoked and are therefore not transferable to today. For instance, in 2 Timothy, Paul instructs Timothy to bring his scrolls and his coats to him. It's in the Bible. My name's Timothy. I've got to find a Paul, and I've got to take my scrolls and my coats to him. It's like, okay, calm down, Timothy, okay? Only Abraham was asked to sacrifice his son. Not all Christian fathers. The Aaronic priesthood and the whole Mosaic law ceremonially have been done away with. Old Testament incense was incest, two different things, (laughs) were punishable by stoning. But in the New Testament, it's punishable and correctable by church discipline. Okay, the third principle Some situations or commands pertain to cultural settings that are only partially similar to ours and in which only the principles are transferable. For instance, greet one another with a holy kiss. It's five times in the Bible. It's not the normal greeting in our culture or our day Although I tend to like to follow it with some real close bros. 
If I haven't kissed you yet, you know where you stand. <laughs> but I'll be up here after the service. We can come remedy that. Okay. Uh, so it's not the normal greeting in our day, but we can still do a similar greeting. Okay, according to our culture, maybe a, you know, or whatever. Okay. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6 says, write verses on the door frames of your house and on gates. Now we might hang them in picture frames or post them on our computer desktop or crochet them or something like that. Uh, In 1 Corinthians 8, we may not see meat sacrificed to idols here in Prineville, Oregon, but we should still be sensitive and not cause our brothers to stumble. The fourth principle, some situations or commands pertaining to cultural settings with no similarities, but in which the principles are transferable. Okay, For instance, pouring perfume on Jesus' feet. Nothing similar culturally here, but there's the principle of worship and offering just valuable worship and incense of prayer to Jesus' feet. Or removing our sandals from our feet while in the presence of God. Verkler says, behavior that has a certain meaning in one culture may have an entirely different meaning in other cultures. So, each Bible writing was written by someone to specific hearers or readers in a specific historical and geographical situation for a specific purpose. So we must first seek to determine what the words meant to those who originally heard them. For instance, if you find a note on someone's door saying, come on in, as you're about to go in, you should hesitate and ask, was this note written for me? Should I go in? And so as we come to our text today, we got to ask, who is this written to? Why was it written? What were the cultural um, specific things going on that would cause this to be written? What's the purpose of the whole context of 1 Timothy? And how does this apply to that then and now? So, In 1 Timothy, one chapter over, actually it's two chapters over, chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, we have the key verse of the whole book, okay? So as we get into women dressing a certain way, doing their hair a certain way, and we might take that and just apply it to all manner of life, it's important that we say, what was that even written to, to Ephesus, to the pastor of Ephesus, Timothy 4. And, and we're told in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 14. And I don't have a ton of scriptures on the screen today, so you would do well to go ahead and flip there today. It says, these things I write to you, and then if you just jump down halfway through verse 15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground 
of the truth. So all the things that were written in 1 Timothy, they were written for a very specific purpose. And so we've got to take a section like this for women and say, primarily, it was written so that we would know how women are to conduct themselves in the house of God. And it's very, very important because this isn't just, you know, some social club that we're a part of. This is the house of the God of the universe, the God of creation, the God of salvation, the judge of the universe to whom every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's pretty deep, important stuff. In fact, it's the most important thing that there is in the entire world. So if the church is the pillar and ground for truth, for that God, we want to make sure that we are conducting ourselves appropriately and rightly in that house of God. Amen? Anybody here else like, okay, I'm, I'm kind of sobered up. Like, how am I supposed to conduct myself? As we move on, Virtually no one in the liberal theological camp holds to a traditional historic interpretation of this text. On the other hand, many, if not most, in the evangelical traditional church do subscribe to the historical interpretation of 1960 years, okay? They may have trouble articulating it, but the majority of traditional Orthodox churches agree with and hold to the historical interpretation. It's crucial that we understand that the historic interpretation of this passage has been the majority view of the church at large for those almost 2,000 years. Bob Yarborough, professor of New Testament at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, surveyed the scholarly articles in the standard bibliographical references tool for the New Testament abstracts. Okay, let's just get over that that was a mouthful. Okay, and Barb noted, Yarborough rather, noted that it was only in 1969 that the progressive revisionist view began to appear in the literature of the academy. But then in the period between 1969 and now, a flood of articles has appeared. He concludes that the rise of the progressives' interpretations promotion following the, it follows the women's movement of the 1960s and is, I quote, indebted significantly and at times probably culpably that was our vocab word from two weeks ago if you remember they're guilty was that word remember to the prevailing social climate they've been yielding to the prevailing social climate rather than yielding to the biblical text similarly harold oj brown (laughs) was his nickname, OJ. I think they quit calling him that after like 1994, but (laughs) they still called him Juice, though. Harold OJ Brown observes, that's just a little pit stop in the midst of a whole lot of theological, okay? He observes, 
when opinions and convictions suddenly undergo dramatic alteration, although nothing new has been discovered, and the only thing that is dramatically changed is the spirit of the age, it is difficult to avoid the conclusion that that spirit has had an important role to play in the shift. Understanding then that the popularity of the progressives' interpretation of the last 30 years has found its impetus in secular culture and that the interpretation runs contrary to the prevailing interpretation of the preceding 1,970 years, which is some 60-odd generations, the burden of proof certainly rests upon the progressive revolutionist. As R. Kent Hughes with Brian Chappelle, two incredibly learned, respected pastors, professors, and theologians have said, our concern is this. If we do not invite the biblical text to define church order, the intrusive culture will. Okay? So what we're getting at is this. When we come to a tough passage, and there are many of them in the scriptures, We bow our knee, first of all, to what the word of God says, okay? And if the first sense makes best sense, seek no other sense, lest you come up with nonsense, okay? That's a great rule of biblical interpretation, all right? So then as we go to that, we use our tools of Bible interpretation And we say, what does the word say concerning this and its theme from Genesis through Revelation? Okay, we go through those four principles that I shared with you before, if not many more. And we are cautious. We are so very cautious to avoid the danger of letting Prineville, Oregon, And its surrounding cultures and the spirit of this age to cause us to squeeze into the word our cultural norms rather than to let the Bible come out and shape us and change us. And bring brokenness and sorrow and repentance forever. We've said, we know better than you, God. Our culture, our government, our movements and society knows better than you, God. It's called eisegesis when we try to cram in our experience and our culture and our private interpretations so that this will fit me. It's called exegesis when we draw out from the word what it clearly says to us and we allow it a change, a change us. Okay, so we drive for exegesis in this church and that's been the striving since the apostles and all through church history. All right, so let's get to verse eight. 
Anybody ready to do a little? <laughs> nobody yet? Okay. Oh, you will be. You will be. <laughs> but that'll probably be by next Sunday. Okay. Verse 8. I desire, therefore, that the men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath and doubting. The purpose here, in light of the context, we have the word therefore, so we're learning how to study the Bible in light of the context. Going back to Paul's desire for prayer to take place, found in chapter uh, 2, verse 8, when he said, or down in verse 1, rather, that supplications, this was last week's Bible study, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. And as we studied last week, the prayer for all men was for the purpose of the world and the nations to come to know Jesus. That they would come to know God our Savior, who desires that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That Jesus Christ is the mediator between God and man, and that he gave his life as a ransom for all to be testified in due time. And knowing that in the context here, that God is a God of salvation that desires salvation for the world, that men ought to be praying all over the world. There's a, context, there's a context here of missionaries uh, within the church that we are, especially the con- it's men praying with missionary hearts, praying everywhere, and our context tells us for everywhere. And that in their prayers, they're to lift up holy hands because the Psalms tell us who can go into the presence of the Lord and ascend to his holy hill. And the psalmist would tell us it is those who have a pure heart and pure hands, who've not lifted up their souls to an idol, who can come into the presence of the Lord in prayer. Men with holy hands. That's not the only people, women with holy hands as well. But we're talking right now about This is men with holy hands leading the church in prayer, leading the church with with purity and holiness, without being in fights with one another, without, you know, having wrath and doubting about one another as we come to worship the Lord. Jesus himself would tell us that when you come to the altar and you've got a problem with a brother, a brother's got a problem with you, you guys go and you reconcile. That way you can come as the leaders of the church and you can come and you can pray without wrath and without doubting. And so this passage, it's in context with the key verse of the book. You ought to know how to conduct yourself in the house of God. And so the men ought to pray everywhere. And they ought to lift up holy hands. So Paul makes it clear, if there's to be propriety in public worship, then men exercising their office. It's the men who lead in this way. They fulfill their responsibility By praying and by doing so in a way that's not marred by bitterness and wrath and doubting. Hughes goes on to say, the way we pray and conduct ourselves has everything to do with the cause of the gospel. We don't just blow over verse 8. We don't just quickly read verse 8. We understand that verse 8 is an extension from verse 1. And it's Paul pleading for us to have a missiological focus, a missionary focus in our prayers, in our leadership, and then it's going to go on. That context continues with the role of women in the church also being directly connected to the missionary cause of God to globally evangelize, okay? There's a context. The context is a missionary uh, focus here. 
got a billion notes, so pardon me as I just try to filter just a little bit here. Then he comes to verse 9. Paul addresses the women, and his concern is exactly the same concern as that of the men. He desires there to be propriety in public worship. And the concern that Paul has is Different in relationship to the women's activities. But there's a major impact to his instruction, and it's the same as for men, that missionary focus to the world. So here we have it, starting in verse 9, and I believe for today we'll just get through verse 10, concerning women in the church. And I have to say before I get started, as I say the word women. I, I just, I want, as I say it, it's almost like a beautiful word, women. You know, I, I've grown up in various rural countries where even in jest, men kind of throw the hey, woman, you know, or whatever. And I, I just, I don't like that. And I've had to even repent of maybe laughing at some, you know, redneck joking, you know, over the last couple decades of my life. And just as I've studied, I've been memorizing 1 Timothy. I've gone over and over and over this passage. The memorizing has helped me kind of get what Paul's saying. And I just have to say that as, I, as I've been saying it, I've been loving the word woman and women. And we ought to. Adam loved that in the Genesis account of creation. And, and as he named uh, a woman, it was a beautiful beautiful name. And so I also, in in thinking about this, and for the next few weeks, I just think about um, just spectacular women in my life, women of God, women of prayer, women of service, women of incredible giftings who've served the church just since I was about, well, probably since my childhood. I remember, you know, I grew up in the church, but especially since I started walking with the Lord, serving arm in arm with other women in really special powerful ways. And so I'm excited to see how, you know, in first reading of these passages, they can be, they can have a rub to them and they can be a bit sticky, but that I think if we get what Paul's talking about and we understand Jesus's heart for women, we're going to come away just with a fragrance, just a beautiful fragrance of God's heart and a beautiful role that God's created for women even within the church. So that may have been a bit of a disclaimer in case things get a little hot at some point. Just remember that, okay? Okay, here we go. Here we have concerning women in the church, their adornment, their clothing, their dress, their propriety. In like manner also, verse 9, that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with propriety and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So in like manner also is what our verse starts out with. Just as the men have been addressed concerning the behavior that Paul desires to see in the house of God, it was for something that was relevant going on in Ephesus, and we have that as well for the women. And he says, I desire, or rather that that the women would adorn themselves in modest apparel. 
that the women adorn themselves in modest apparel. The word modest here speaks of proper apparel. One word that in all my reading, and I've just been doing a ton of reading this week, one word that keeps coming up is this proper. Proper, and I'm noticing this because I graduated high school, so good on me. Appropriate. Proper, appropriate, okay. Appropriate, propriety, that all has to do with proper, okay? That in the dressing, there would be appropriate, modesty. Now, what's the context here? What's our key verse say? What is Paul talking about? He is talking about in the household of God. That, it is, that is his first and number one context to the Ephesians that is transferable to us today, that as we come to the house of the Lord, that women adorn themselves properly, appropriately, with propriety. Okay, capiche? This word adore, I like it, because in the Greek it's cosmeo. Cosmeo. Cosmetics, right? It's where we get that word. It means to make neat. To decorate. To beautify. It speaks of trimming a wick. Okay? Interesting, we talked about it uh, a few weeks ago. That uh, it was, um, who's the old Oklahoma man that speaks on the radio all the time? Uh, J. Vernon McGee. You know? You know, of course, an Oklahoman would say this, no offense, but uh, he would say, uh, if the barn needs painting, then paint it, okay? Uh, so that, he said that. I didn't. I was just wondering how you guys felt about it. I think I got my answer. It's the beauty of quotes. Okay. And so it doesn't say, I, I in like manner, that the women never adorn themselves, you know, but rather that they, they make themselves neat and they decorate themselves and they beautify themselves with modest apparel. Okay. Um, evidently, here's the culture. And, and I've done a lot of work in trying to get this right. Evidently, some women were experiencing this rush of a cultural revolution that was happening in Ephesus. It was really its own form of, of our 1960s. It was going on. Some of it was good, but most of it was immoral and immodest. Kind of like our cultural revolution and our sexual revolution from the 60s and 70s. And so with this, um, there were women and there were wealthy women who were beginning to rise up in society and take public offices. And there's wonderful things about that. But with it also came wealthy women decorating themselves in a way that was oh so similar to the Hunger Games. Okay? Uh, if you haven't seen the Hunger Games, it's 2018. Come on. Okay? Um, Google it. But we're talking, the language speaks of high hair. You know, it's almost like uh, 1790s, you know, France. High hair, you know, 
uh, just decorated with jewels and pearls and, you know, and the makeup and the jewel. I mean, but, but primarily Paul is talking about like some majorly aggressive beehives going on here. Okay. <laughs> I mean, that's the culture that we're talking about here. Uh, women were imitating coifers. I don't know if I'm saying that right, but it speaks of women's elaborate hairstyle. And with that came Total Hunger Games style. Uh, do a Google image, image search and just say, you know, Hunger Games clothes or something. You know, it'll, it'll be hilarious. Um, um, but there was this lavish clothing that was making its way into the Roman court. And it was known for its licentiousness. And so that's what Paul's dealing with as he writes this. These gals are, are making their way into the church, and, and wonderfully so, but with it they're bringing in a Roman pagan culture that's surrounded by Ephesus and its idolatry and its um, worship of Diana or Artemis, who is as the goddess of fertility, She's a multi-breasted goddess, and the statues and the images would be everywhere. And so all of that culture was beginning, we were finding it in the church of Ephesus. But as Paul speaks towards this uh, modest apparel, the language in the Greek also refers to the demeanor that comes with the attire. So the emphasis falls on the modesty of the behavior that accompanies the dress and the hairdo. Only orderly and decent conduct comes and should attend to the practice of Christian worship. So Paul is trying to reflect a dress that reflects a right attitude of the the mind of the woman. Paul was shrewd enough to know that a woman's dress was the mirror of her mind. The woman's dress was the mirror of her mind. And so he's ruling out any sort of outward immodesty because it does not keep with a prayerful, devout approach to the Lord. So that the women would adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety and moderation propriety it speaks of appropriate and it speaks of a sense of shame or modesty they would just never want to be ashamed by the way they dressed and it speaks especially towards bashful downcast eyes towards men that they would never be revealing anything about themselves that would cause a man to come to lust for them And the context would be, especially in the household of God. With propriety comes moderation. Moderation speaks of being self-controlled. That the way that you dress when you come to church shows that you are a woman who is in restraint. You are in sound judgment of mind. You have sobriety and discretion. And then we come to this fun little tidbit that's oh so fun. Not with braided hair. (laughs) I noticed some gals here this morning. They're like, better get this out today for this, you know. Okay. So that you would dress, let's just read the verse again. That the women adorn themselves in modest apparel with propriety 
and moderation, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly clothing. The plating of the hair was a usual feature of Jewish women's hairstyle. And in the more elaborate types of braidings, they were fastened with ribbons and bows and and jewels. And so Paul in this is not speaking, of course, against a reasonable style of hairdressing, but against that which is designed for ostentatious adornment, for immodest, inappropriate dressing, and which would have been inappropriate for Christian women. That's the hairstyle that we're dealing with. I don't even know what that might be in this day and age, to be honest with you. I did some Google searches. I'm like, fancy hair for gals, you know. You know, it's, it's okay. It's okay. You know, no, they're actually, man, they're, the, the pictures that came up were just beautifully braided hair in this day and age, still pretty modest, you know, but I could see in some of these beautiful hairstyles, if someone were coming into the household of God and they just looked jaw dropping, incredible with these, then, you know, we're sitting here singing about lifting up holy hands to the Lord and we're just more. You know, that is an incredible do. I'm wondering where she got it done. I'm a little jealous that my wife doesn't have that hairdo. How much does that cost? Man, she's beautiful. You know. That's what was going on. I'm not sure it's a big problem here, but we asked the Holy Spirit to bring conviction, right? Lindsay's looking at doing the rainbow hairstyle, and I think it's pretty cool, actually. But, you know, in the front row, it might be a little ostentatious, word of the day. Okay. <laughs> then we have or gold or pearls or costly clothing. So with these gals coming in dressed in Hunger Games fashion, they have got expensive clothing. And it reflects a position of a heart that is immodest. Proverbs tells us of this incredible account of a man being led into sexual immorality just by walking down the street. And as he's walking down the street, uh, the writer pans over to a woman that is waiting for him to entrap him. And it says, there a woman met him with the attire of a harlot and a crafty heart. And so it's important as we come to the household of God, that as women come to the household of God, it's known in the culture, what are the, in culture and, and um, contextually here, we are talking about just incredibly wealthy garments, but that have the level of sexual immodesty with them, okay? So we all know what that is in our culture. You don't go through the grocery line, you know, without just being confronted with it, you know, with your kids and everybody around you. It's there and it's in front of you. Not a great idea to wear one of those dresses to worship in the household of God. I mean, just it's a little correction to some of you out there that have been doing it, but just simmer down just a little bit. With this gold and pearls and costly clothing, we are dealing primarily with this, it, there's this level of expense put into it. As I've been reading, that's, that's the main cultural thing that Paul was writing to there. And he says, don't let it be with that as you come to the household of the Lord. But verse 10, but which is proper for women professing godliness. And I like this verse. In my memorizing, I just found myself going over and over and over it, putting 
the emphasis on this, this last phrase. But let them adorn themselves with that which is proper for women professing godliness. Well, so what is that, Rory? What, what are the women supposed to adorn themselves with? With good works. I like the comma being where it is. What is appropriate for women professing godliness? The adornment of good works. And Peter tells us that in 1 Peter chapter 3. Let's turn there together. I don't have it on the screen. I'm already out of time for the day, so we will be ending after verse 10 here. But 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1 through 6. Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. Do not let your adornment be merely outward. Okay? So it doesn't say, don't let your adornment be outward. It's like, just don't let it be only about what's on the outside. The arranging of the hair, the wearing of gold, or the putting on a fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, going on telling about Sarah's testimony. And so the adornment that we see paralleled in another passage, a cross-reference in Scripture, is that it's not to be merely the outward and the extravagant doing of the hair or the putting on of the jewels or the expensive clothing. What Paul calls the women of the church to adorn themselves with, what is truly beautiful as you come to fellowship with your brothers in Christ who are here worshiping with you and your sisters around you. I learned something from my wife when I was newly married that, <coughs> that women don't dress for the men. They dress for the other women. That was like a total revelation to me. Like people are like, what? Totally dress for the men. That's wrong too, okay? Uh, the women dress for the other women. There's, it's part of that culture. It's part of that group. And we're told here, Paul telling the women, when you come, dress for the Lord and dress with moderation and dress in a way that will edify your brothers around you not cause you to stumble. Donald Guthrie says, a woman's adornment, in short, lies not in what she puts on, but in the loving service she gives out. <laughs> dressing up, I think it was Alistair Begg that said, dressing up on the part of a woman was conveyed both sexual wantedness and wifely insubordination. Indeed, for a married woman, so to dress in public was tantamount to marital unfaithfulness. And so we've got to be very careful in our application of this, because a wooden application of the First Peter passage, for instance, if you're reading the King James Version, says, don't let a woman adorn herself. It basically would, would have almost like a nakedness connotation. So that's not good as you're coming to the house of the Lord. So we don't want the wooden application of it, but we want to have a type of application that would be true to the text and see if it would be transferable to our culture as well. Kind of the modern day 
lingo might be, sisters, as you come to the house of the Lord, don't dress to the nines. You know, if we were in the 60s, it'd be don't wear a miniskirt, you know, up through the 80s. When you come to the house of the Lord, don't wear the miniskirt with the halter top, you know. In the 90s, it'd be, gals, when you come, you know, to the house of the Lord, uh, you know, man, I'd encourage you to make sure that the shirt goes all the way down, you know, past your, your jeans or your pants so that the midriff isn't showing. That could stumble, you know. Uh, you know, watch the spaghetti straps or watch the low-rise V-neck or something, you know, as we're looking at time and time as cultures change and as, as, um, as styles change, you know, braided hair isn't that stumbling to the men anymore. It's like, okay, there's some little house in the prairie coming in, you know, or something like, like not, not a big deal, you know. Not, not really stumbled by that. Some, some are, some are. We'll pray for you af- after the service. <clears throat> there was some confessing times at the men's retreat. I won't tell you who it was. But, but you know, don't wear your bikini to church. You know, there may be other places where that's appropriate. But the household of God is not the place. Don't wear your yoga pants to church, right? We don't need to know every shape of every part of you, all right? And if you're wearing the tight pants, you know, do it with propriety and moderation and put on the blouse or the, I don't know the lingo, the blouse, parka, you know, I don't know. Cover up the booty, okay? This is transferable to our culture in many ways, in many ways, as we come to the house of the Lord, sisters, be appropriate, be appropriate. Sisters, what men of God desire and what the, you know, I don't know how true it is we dress for the women, you know, but just know we all want your good works to be shining like a light. That's what's cared about here. We're addressing how we conduct ourselves in the household of God. And so we have the worship team come up. The J.B. Phillips translation says, very accurate Greek paraphrase for us, the women should be dressed quietly and their demeanor should be modest and serious. The adornment of a Christian woman is not a matter of an elaborate coiffure, expensive clothes, or valuable jewelry, but the living of a good life. Let's stand together.